small matter of the Queen's birthday. Do you know, the Queen says this, which I find quite amazing, considering that she is the Queen and possibly one of the most famous people in the world. She says this, I know just how much I rely on my faith to guide me through the good times and the bad. Each day is a new beginning. I know the only way to live my life is to try to do what is right, to take the long view, to give of my best, and in all that the day brings, to put my trust in God. If ever there was anyone in worldly terms who didn't need to put their trust in God, it would be someone like the Queen who has everything. And yet she puts her trust in God every day. And we do the same as well. It says in Psalm 113 that God is higher than anything and anyone, outshining everything you can see in the skies. Who can compare with God, our God, so majestically enthroned, surveying his magnificent heavens and earth? He picks up the poor from out of the dirt. He rescues the wretched who have been thrown out with the rubbish. He seats them among honoured guests, a place of honour among the brightest and the best. You know, we have the Queen and important people, but God places everyone in the same position. He doesn't place them all low down. He lifts us all up to his throne. Now, a few weeks ago when it was the Queen's birthday, real birthday... We had a quiz at the group Does God Matter where we looked at the Queen in numbers. How many of this had she had? How many of this had she done? And this morning I thought we'd do the same. So for those of you who were there at Does God Matter, remember you'll, you know, win the quiz in flying colours. But first of all I have to do something. (sighs) Got to be patriotic while I'm doing my quiz. I don't really wear dealy boppers as a rule, so I'm not sure whether they suit. All right? Bit distracting. Okay, so I'm simply going to ask a question like this. How many years has the Queen been on the throne? An easy one for starters. I'm going to give you three choices of answer, and all you have to do is guess the right one. If you want to guess the right one, I don't want you to put your hands up. That would be way too dull for this occasion. You just have to say, yes, ma'am. Okay, so how many years has the Queen been on the throne? Is it A, 62, B, 63, or C, 64? This is the easy one, okay? So who thinks A, 62 years? B, 63? I can't... We're doing hands. Oh, yes, ma'am. Or C, 64? You're absolutely correct. 64 years on the throne. Please remember that. Okay, how many state visits has the Queen made? How many state visits in all that time has the Queen made? Is it A, 130 visits to different places? Is it B, 97? Or is it C, 89? Who thinks A, 130? Quite a few. Who thinks B, 97? Oh, oh, you were quite confident there. Who thinks C, 89? Oh, oh, a quiet yes, ma'am. It's quite nice because I'm standing at the front and people are going, yes, (laughs) ma'am. It is B, 
97. Well done. Be confident when you speak out. Okay, how many corgis has the Queen owned in her time as Queen? Or could be in her life. A, 25. How many little corgi dogs has she owned? 25. B, 10. Got here. C, 30. So who thinks A, 25 corgis? Who thinks B, 10? Or C, 30? You're correct, she's owned 30 corgi dogs. Yeah, quite a few. What happens if someone bought her a dog that wasn't a corgi? Would she not accept it? Okay, number four. How many prime ministers has the Queen advised during her time as Queen? Quickly doing the calculations in your head. Is it A, 8, B, 12, or C, 15? Who thinks A, 8 prime ministers? Who thinks B, 12 prime ministers? Oh, it's getting a bit... Yes, ma'am. Or C, 15? Yes, ma'am. She has actually advised 12 prime ministers during her time. Okay, people put their hands up for that. Yes. Now, this is an easy one, because you surely have read this. How many hours does the Queen work each week on average? She's 90 years old. How many hours does she work each week? Is it A, 40 to 50 hours working week for the Queen? 40 to 50 hours. Is it B, 30 to 35 hours? Or is it C, 12 to 20? Allegedly, 12 to 20. Who thinks A, 40 to 50 hours? Oh, yes, yes, ma'am. 30 to 35? Or a leisurely 12 to 20? Yes, ma'am. Oh. She does still work a 40 to 50 hour week. Yes. Gosh, I hope I don't have to do that when I'm that age. Okay. Right. How many charities is the Queen patron of? How many charities is she patron of? So she, how would you, how would you call a patron in a normal language? Part of? Involved in? Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Is it A, 600? Is it B, 150? Or is it C, 1,000 charities? Who thinks A, 600? Who thinks B, 150? That was about the same. Who thinks C, 1,000? Okay, it is... A, 600. It's patron 600. Okay, this is a good one. How many honours, you know, knighthoods, MBEs, OBEs, has the Queen awarded? Is it A, 125,000? Is it B, 367,987? Or is it C, 412,000? 750. Okay, who thinks A? 125,000. Okay, who thinks B? 367,987. Or who thinks C? 412,750. 
Oh, only, only one voice got that right. 412,750 honours she's given out. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Okay, and finally, how many Christmas messages has the Queen given? Okay. Is it A, 45? Is it B, 63? Or is it C, 64? Okay. Who thinks A, 45? Oh. B, 63? Or C, 64? It's actually 63. What did she do on that year? Oh! Oh, yeah. So that'd be 64. Brilliant. I'm a bit tired. Had a party yesterday. Not for the reasons you think. Okay. Wonderful. You did very well on the Queen's quiz. Um, The Queen says this. When she came to be Queen, she asked this of people in the country. Pray that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. It used to be that people regularly prayed for the Queen. It used to be that we regularly prayed for the Queen. We don't often do that now, and I thought what might be nice is with the bits of paper that you hopefully received as you came in, you could write a prayer for the Queen. I might send them off to the Queen and say we've been praying for her. I might. So... If you just spend a couple of minutes writing what you would want to pray for the Queen. She asked that we would pray for her. If you can't write, you could draw a picture for the Queen. I'm sure she'd love that as well. But write a prayer for the Queen. And then in a few moments, we will offer these prayers to God. We've been looking over the past few weeks at the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. And we've travelled through a couple of chapters. We're hitting chapter three, where we will be crossing the River Jordan today. I'd like to invite Miranda to come read the passage to us. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out for Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, who are Levites, carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, 
go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gingishites, Amorites and Jesuits. Use the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Sorry. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in on the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant, went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during the harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water for upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarath. Zarathan, while the water flowing down the Sea of Arabia, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on the dry ground and in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When I came here... Eight years ago, I had a bit of study to do because when you move to your first church um, after you've been ordained, you have three years of study to do alongside your work. And it's not a lot of study, and so I thought, oh, that's fine, three years of study, easy, complete that, move on. Well, then, part way into my study, not that I was bombing along and doing really well, I decided to have a child. And so my study got a little bit delayed. I got an extension, extenuating circumstances. And then as I was coming to the deadline for that, not that I was doing really well with it, I decided to have another child, you know, just to put off, just to put off the completion of the study. So I got an extension for that. And then, well, you know, then I had two children and studying and working. And so I got a few more extensions. And then... Seven years on from the beginning of my study, bearing in mind I had to have completed it within three years, my final deadline arrived last year. And you would think by this time I would just have a little bit to complete. No, but no, I studied for hours and hours to do all the study I should have done in the last three years. But I managed to complete it. And in March last year, I finally got my certificate such a joy, put it on my wall, to say that I was recognised as a Baptist minister. Because before you've completed your study, you're not recognised. You're just sort of on a different list. And, you know, it was really good to finally complete this thing that had been hanging over my head. It was a chapter in my life that I could close and move on from. It was a burden that I could put aside and look towards new things. And here at the beginning of chapter 3 in the book of Joshua, I think the Israelites find themselves at a similar point. 
Because here, as they prepare to cross the River Jordan into the Promised Land, they find themselves on the verge of completing a burdensome burdensome chapter in their lives. It was a chapter that began with another crossing, another crossing of water, when they were led by Moses, having been chased by the Egyptian army, having exited Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And then they walked through the middle of the Red Sea. You may remember that story back in the book of Exodus. At that point, they thought, very much like me, probably, that it was just a matter of time before they would cross the wilderness, camp on the verge of the River Jordan, and then cross into the promised land that God had promised to them long before. In reality, due to their fear and disobedience, it was to take rather a lot longer than they expected, just like myself. After 40 years, that would be terrible if I'd been studying for 40 years, wouldn't it? But no. After 40 years, they actually eventually reached the point of crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land to end a chapter in their lives that began with one body of water and ended with another at the other side. And it's interesting that these two crossings, the crossing of the Red Sea back in the book of Exodus and the crossing of the River Jordan here in this chapter, are actually very similar. For instance, they're both crossings that depend very much on the power of God. The crossing of the Red Sea was one where the Israelites depended on God to part the waters so that they could walk through the middle on dry land. It was the power of God that parted the sea and brought them safely through. And here again, as they looked across the Jordan, they depend once more on God to show his power, to perform another miracle, to cross the Jordan that at that time would have been in full flow because it was the end of the rainy season. And God does perform another miracle. As the waters from upstream stopped flowing, it piled up in a heap a great distance away. So once again, the people of God could cross on dry land. But that's not the only similarity between these two crossings. The crossings of the Red Sea and the River Jordan are also crossings which in turn prove the authority of God's chosen leader at that time. Moses was exalted after a rather faulty start in Egypt as the unrivaled leader of Israel when God parted the Red Sea. After Israel saw the wonders that God performed at the hand of Moses, they followed him almost unwaveringly as he led the people. And here in chapter 3, God promises that this will happen again, but this time with Joshua. He even takes him aside and he says, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. These two crossings, these two bookends in this chapter of the lives of the people of Israel have certain similarities. And what's more, in each case, they also serve as a weapon of judgment to the nations around. In the crossing of the Red Sea is, of course, the Egyptians, those who have enslaved the people of God and refused to let them go for so long, who suffer when they follow Israel who have crossed the sea, the waters begin to flow back, covering the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. God's judgment had finally come to those people. 
And here in the book of Joshua, although it's not the waters that bring destruction to those who live in the promised land, it is the crossing of God's people through the waters, a nation that had come to claim the land, that will ultimately lead to the destruction of the nations who lived there at that time. There's much in these two crossings that is very similar. And in many ways, because of this, brings a sense of closure to a chapter of wondering in the lives of the people of Israel. And yet, despite this, the crossing at the River Jordan is also very different to that that took place 40 years previously at the Red Sea. Because if we go back to the book of Exodus, where this chapter of the lives of the people of God begin, we encounter there a very different people. We encounter a people, first of all, who are scared. A people who have hurriedly packed up all they have to leave a country that had been their home. It hadn't been a very good home. They'd been slaves in that home, but it had been the only home that they had ever known. It had been their home for 400 years. And then having left this home, having hurriedly left Egypt, or rather having been told to go after the death of the firstborn sons in the land, Israel then find themselves trapped. Pharaoh, having changed his mind and decided he wants the Israelites back as slaves, has decided to pursue these men, women and children. And with the full force of his army, he catches up with them at the shores of the Red Sea, in effect trapping them between death on one side and death on the other. And so the people are scared. They cry out to Moses, and Moses cries out to God, and God says, why are you crying out to me? Do not be afraid, he says. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. And then the people of God sit and watch. They watch as God moves the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud between them and the Egyptians. They watch as God drives back the sea so there's dry land. And they watch as God brings confusion to the army of Egypt so that in fear and desperation, Israel can finally walk through the Red Sea to moderate safety in the wilderness. This is how we find the people of God when we look back at the crossing which started this chapter in their lives. But now, 40 years on in our passage today, things are very different. For a start, there is a set amount of time for the people of Israel. They're not being pursued by the Egyptians. They're not in immediate danger. They're not hurried or unsettled as they're by the side of the River Jordan. They have a day or two to get ready. And so Joshua calls the people to prepare, not to hurry and rush and get things quickly done, but to take time to prepare themselves before God. They have time, and so he calls them to prepare themselves before the God who will lead them. And not only that, but he calls them to be expectant, not fearful, as they were 40 years before, but expectant as to what God is going to do. He says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Or if you like, Joshua calls the people to make themselves ready for God, to put aside those things that distract them, that they've been thinking about, that have become their life, and to use this time wisely so that they can dedicate themselves to God again. He says, come here. And listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. So that when you face the future, when the time comes to follow him, you will be ready. Not hurried and rushed, but ready. 
And then Joshua says, after you've prepared yourselves, wait. Don't run ahead in anticipation or become eager as to what God wants, but wait. See, he says, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Joshua tells the people of Israel to prepare themselves and then to wait, to wait for God to lead them. There is to be no crying out in desperation. There's to be no rush to scramble across the water. There's to be no fear of what might happen next. Instead, the people of God are to follow the guidance that God has given through Joshua. And they're to do that, that this chapter in their lives might be concluded in the right way. And what's most interesting here is that there's also no passivity among the people of God. They're not simply sitting around waiting and hoping that God will provide a miracle so that they can get to Canaan, as they did back on the shore of the Red Sea. This time, they're participating. They're preparing themselves. They're expectant. They're looking towards God. They're following him. This time, they're fully involved in what God is doing, to the point that the waters only part after the priests of Israel have put their feet into the edges of it. They don't watch and wait for God to do everything before they move, like the small, immature children they were when they exited Egypt. This time, the people of God participate fully in what God has for them, because this time, they finally learn something about what it is to put their trust in God and to follow him. And you know, as we look at this story and as we reflect on the story of Joshua, as we see the difference between the people of God in these two crossings 40 years apart, it's perhaps appropriate maybe to think about our journey with God, both as individuals and here as God's family. Of course, we're all at different stages in our lives. Some of us may be facing the closing of a certain chapter, and some of us may be facing the opening of a new venture. And some of us may be just same old, same old. We're just, you know, living our lives. But as God's family here, when we come together, we are seeking the way that he wants us to be and to go. That's what we do. We come together to seek to follow God. And whether we feel these experiences of the two crossings directly relate to where we are individually, it's important that we seek to listen to what God's got to say to us from this passage. Do you know, when I was doing those studies, I talked about the beginning of this, and when I had to read those books and I had to write up about them... I was just desperate, you know, to read a book because I I could read a book. I just thought, you know, I'm fed up of reading a book either to study or to prepare for something. I just want to have time to read a book. It's not even that I want to read a novel. I'd like to read a good Christian book and just sit there and think about it and take it in. And I said to myself, you know, when I've finished these studies, when I've finally got this chapter of my life behind me, I'm going to use the time that I've used to study to sit and read and ponder, and become wise, like these people do. Of course, now finished, there's still no time, because my time's filled up with urgent things, or browsing the internet, or going on Facebook, whatever there is, my time's filled up with many things. And you know, in the same sense, even though we're not on the verge of the Red Sea, with the full force of the Egyptian army bearing down on us, and even though we have time, as those on the verge of the River Jordan did, to get ready before God, often we still find it difficult to use that time to prepare ourselves. There's always something to do. 
And we find it difficult to consecrate ourselves, as Joshua called the people of God to do, you know, to listen to the words of God Almighty regularly, to think about them, to meditate on them, to find space and time to make ourselves ready for God, to put aside those things that distract us or take up our time, to use our time wisely so that we know what it is to dedicate lives to him rather than turn upon a Sunday and think, oh, I hope God speaks to me. We know what it is to be in his word and to live from his word. So that when he calls us to move, when he calls us to engage with something in our village or to follow him on a certain path in our lives or to take on certain responsibilities, we won't simply be busy rushing around doing lots of good things. We'll be ready and we'll be waiting. We'll be ready to follow the things that God wants us to do at this time. We'll be in the right place to follow him. So that when we respond, we won't be like the immature children that God had to rescue from the edge of the Red Sea. People who wait for God to do everything before they're willing to commit. Or people who panic and cry out in desperation for a miracle again and again. Or people who are fearful of what God might do next. Instead, we'll be like those who eventually stood on the edge of the River Jordan, the people of God who are ready, the people of God who are expectant, the people of God who are trusting him for the future. So that in our maturity, instead of waiting for God to do everything, we can participate with him to the point that sometimes we have the courage to put our foot in the water before God provides the miracle. Do you know, on December 1939, Britain had been at war with Germany for three months. And King George VI had to make a speech. If you've watched the King's speech, then you'll be aware that this is what the film is about. He had to make a speech to the nation who had just come out of the back of World War I and were now facing World War II, and he had to encourage them. And, of course, he was very nervous. He wasn't into public speaking. And the Queen who was 13 at the time, handed him a poem. It was a poem by Minnie Louise Haskins. And she thought it might be useful for him. And it ended up being a poem that he used in this speech that helped the country who were about to face war. It's very famous. This is what it says. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. And you know, as the people of God sought to trust him and participate with him on the banks of the River Jordan, this was where they stood. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't even know the way. They'd never been there. They turned back 40 years previously. But they were prepared enough, and they were expectant enough, and they were mature enough to know that they could put their hand into the hand of God and trust that he would lead them into the future. And today, as God's people, I hope that we can do the same. I hope that we're not a body of immature children who cry out in desperation, thrown from one crisis to the next, but rather we can be a people who, despite what's going on around us, are prepared enough and expectant enough to be able to walk into the darkness, to put our hand into the hand of God 
and to trust him to lead us into the future as we wait expectantly for what the young people are to do. Let's stand and sing, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah.